Well, amen, amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Hey, we're starting a new series through the book of Acts today, so you'll notice that there's Acts books. Uh, we want to resource you. I've told you this, by the time I leave here one day, whether you kick me out or I die here, that you'll have every book of the Bible covered, and this will become like a mini commentary for you. So if you didn't grab one of those books, there's some empty ones towards the middle because uh, there's like a bubonic plague in the middle, so we realize that it's hard to sit there. Uh, but grab one of those books. There's also communion there. Uh, we're going to take communion today, so make your way to the book of Acts, to the book of Acts. All right, as you do that... A dad and his son walked into a church building one day, and as they were walking around, the son noticed these plaques on the wall. So the son began to ask, Dad, what are those plaques? The dad says, oh, son, those are to honor all the people who died in the service. And the son looked at the dad and said, which service, Daddy, the 9 a.m. or the 11 a.m.? <laughs> all of you know that oftentimes there seems to be dead bodies left in the wake of the church. Maybe, maybe for you, you just feel like church is dead. I read today a stat that the church is at its all-time low in America when it comes to attendance and engagement. Maybe that's how you feel. Maybe some of you wonder why you even show up here. Let me just tell you the big idea today is that church is supposed to be a living movement. It's supposed to be a living movement that is exciting and life-changing, but Let's just be honest, that's not what most of our church experience is. Most of our church experience is like, oh, I got to get up this morning, the alarm clock went off, I grinded 80 hours this week, and I just need a day of rest, right? So you seem like you show up and you do all this stuff and it's not restful at all. For others of you, if you're really, really honest, you don't even believe this stuff, but you see the morality of the world around you and you think it's better that you raise your kids in this environment than that environment. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you that that was your childhood experience? Right? Listen, as we jump into the book of Acts today, this morning, what I want to show you is that the church is actually supposed to be the most powerful force on the planet. This is supposed to be the place where the world changes. And historically speaking, whether or not you knew this or not, but the church started the first schools started the first hospitals, even launched a scientific method. Even today, the church is responsible for more um, relief work and charitable giving than any other organization on the planet. And when the church is united, we see organizations create clean water that changes people's world. We plant churches. We relieve poverty. We mobilize people to go to some of those difficult places on the planet. Ask Dustin about where Haggai International is right now in some places that you and I would never be able to step foot in. Once I read a PhD dissertation, yes, I'm that guy that actually reads these things. And it talked about the world and world governments that were created by institutions that, or, or countries that had a Christian background. Now, take aside all the, the, the big colonization, all that stuff. We know there's a lot of negative there. But if you actually look at church, or countries that were founded on a Christian foundation, what they have found over time is that they are way more economically sound and they have a sense of morality and human equality that no other countries in the world have. You see, the world we live in, especially right now, is shaped by the church. But we've become so accustomed to the air that we breathe, like Glenn Scrivener, the, the British author, says, that we don't even know that you believe what you believe because of Jesus. 
Not like this. The entire sexual revolution in America that is designed to tear down the church is actually built on the Christian ethic of equality. They don't even know that they're using the only thing that they have, which is a Christian ethic, to show that humanity has value to try to tear down the one institution that gave them something that they actually have, which is, which is equality. By the way, if you don't believe me, if you don't believe me, go spend a couple weeks in a place like India or the Middle East and come back and I will show you that the things that you take for granted, like privilege and equality, are distinctly Christian ethics that come from the Bible and from the church. The church is meant to be the most powerful force on the planet. And if you would take the time to recapture what the book of Acts actually says about the church, I'm telling you, you will experience the same power that has changed the world for the last 2,000 years. Y'all, Jesus is ready. He is ready to unleash his power on this world through his church. He's ready to use you to do it. And I'm telling you, it will change your life. So lean in. Lean in on the book of Acts. We're going to be going through this for the next year. We're going to take some pauses, so it's not going to be straight through. We'll do some series in between. But over the next year, we are going to cover the book of Acts verse by verse, all right? Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, if you take notes, you should ask the question, what's the first book? Where did that come from? Who's the writer? What did he say? Great question. Flip back over in your Bible just a couple books to the book of Luke. All right, the gospel of Luke. Look at how the gospel of Luke begins. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus. See that? Same writer, same person. That you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are actually one book in two volumes. So you read both of them together. Most likely, scholars will tell you that Theophilus was probably Luke's boss. Luke was a physician that was hired by him as a personal, um, as a personal assistant. So Theophilus probably would have told Luke, I need you as your job to give me an orderly account of this guy named Jesus. So God uses these two books to create an orderly account of Jesus' birth and his church what you're going to see is the gospel of Luke is about the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The book of Acts is about the birth of the church. See, the first book, Luke is writing to tell you all that Jesus began to do and teach. Y'all, that's a super important phrase because that means that Jesus is still teaching. That should give you hope. That should give you amazing hope. You see, Jesus' earthly ministry was all about what he began to do and teach, and now the book of Acts is all about how the kingdom of God is going to continue to expand through his church. By the way, that's the big idea for the entire book of Acts. The gospels were just the beginning. Now God works through his church. Say it another way, you are God's plan A. That should excite you. Like God didn't just set the world in motion and step back. No, he's using you. 
Let me take a second and talk to a couple of you when it comes to this. Some of you were told, man, that you're not good for anything. Some of you were told that your life has no purpose. Some of you were told that you're not going to amount to anything, that you're just average. Can I just tell you, if you give yourself to the church, then you will be a part of a movement that expands eternity. Like, your life will have extreme purpose, even if you don't think so. That you're a part of a larger narrative and story that is changing redemptive history. Like, from the book of Genesis, where God created Adam and Eve and breathed life into them, to the book of Revelation, where he comes back, and as J.R. Tolkien famously said, one day he will wipe away every tear from your eye, and he will make every sad thing become untrue. This structure in between is what God is using to bring about that kingdom change, and you are the change. You got to understand that. One of the things I love about the Bible is that God always picks the most least likely to do the most incredible things. Just this morning, I was reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in my Bible reading time, and God uses the foolishness of the world to shame the wise. So no matter what you think about yourself, I want you to know that God has a plan for your life. Let me tell you a couple of things you need to remember if you're going to remember this about God beginning his teaching. Here's number one. Jesus still speaks today. Jesus still speaks today. Some people believe that whenever God, whenever God finished the Bible, this canon of scripture, these 66 books written by 40 different authors, that God ceased to talk. Like, like he doesn't do giftings or, or signs anymore. That is just ludicrous, and nothing in the Bible actually says that. God is still alive and active today, and he still speaks just as powerfully today as he did 2,000 years ago. Here's number two. Well, actually, write this down. Write this down before I get there. The primary way that God speaks is through his scriptures. But God also speaks through his spirit and through his church. Why do I tell you that? Because God doesn't contradict himself. Sometimes God gives you a special word. He tends to do that through the people around you as you live in community, but it doesn't contradict itself. I hear people tell me stuff like this all the time. Well, God, God spoke to me and he told me like I should sleep with my girlfriend and move. That wasn't God. That might have been your barbecue you ate the other day that got your stomach all turned up, but that wasn't God because it contradicts what the word of God says. But oftentimes, God's word is valid and it's clear, and then there's this gray area in life that you don't know what God is saying, and then God uses his people to fill in the gaps there. Like, should I take that job? Should I move? Should I be a part of that? Should I be a part of this? Oftentimes, those are good answers on both sides, and you need wisdom and community to make those decisions. Here's number two. Jesus is still involved today. He doesn't just speak today. He's involved today. Like some of you view God as like this God who set the earth in motion and then he stepped back and he's letting the whole thing play out. That's not true. He is intricately involved in every single detail of your life. He is still sovereignly involved in every aspect of this world. And the one thing that I've learned a long time ago that you need to understand is that God's silence does not equal his absence. Sometimes he's silent because he's trying to do something in you. If you can understand everything about God, by the way, that would make you God. I don't know about you, I'm not that smart. And I don't want to think that I can comprehend everything about the sovereign God of the universe. I am thankful that there are things about God that just don't make sense to me. Because if it made sense to me, that would mean that God's not that smart. 
because I'm not that smart. You know, does that make sense? Probably not. See, instead of always questioning, at some point you have to sit back and you have to simply know what's true and submit to it. Like, when you can't see him, you have to understand that he is still moving in the background. The, the prophet Habakkuk, way back in the Old Testament, when, when the nation of Israel was raging, whenever there was exile coming, if you remember in 586 BC, the nation of Babylon, they come and they take over the southern kingdom of Judah, and, and it's a really bad deal. And, and Habakkuk looks at God and he says, what are you doing? Remember what God said? If I even told you, it wouldn't make sense to you. So just trust me. You know what he was doing? He was using those things to push out into exile the people of God so that when Acts chapter 2 came about and whenever he was waiting to do the greatest church planting movement on the planet, he would already have people in every one of these cities. Matter of fact, whenever the apostles went to those cities, it said that they were met by the brothers who had already planted those churches. The greatest church planting movement in the history of the world were started by people that you don't even know their names. Think about that. God is still intricately involved in every single detail. If I can be a little more clear, God's still intricately involved in every single detail of your life, every detail. So when you don't hear from him, trust him. When you don't understand him, believe him. When it seems like he's distant, he's not. He's still there. Verse two. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, according to them, I'm sorry, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus is not a fairy tale myth like every other religion. You realize that Jesus, according to the Bible, was a real man who entered real history at a real time and is really verifiable. He's not a legend that you can't verify. No, everything about what happens in the Bible happens in history. See, according to the Bible, you can actually go back and you can look into this stuff. Look, I know it takes faith to believe the Bible, but I'm just telling you it's the most reasonable faith on the planet and everything that you believe in life takes faith. But I'm, I'm, I'm here to tell you that there's no theory in the world that's more believable than the resurrection of Jesus. Like what's easier to believe? that the world randomly collided through molecules, that somehow, some way got this big bang that over time, little by little, over billions of years, nothing turned into something, and then you became a monkey and you turned into a human being? Y'all, if you turn on the news, it'd be a lot easier to believe that you started off as a human and you're kind of becoming a monkey. Like, things seem to be a jungle out there. What's easier to believe? I mean, Seriously. This idea of macroevolution, what I mean by that is species changing, where we have absolutely no evidence of that? Or is it easier to believe that the God of the universe, who actually is outside of time and has worked all things from the beginning, spoke this whole thing into being? It is a faith proposition, but it's the most logical and reasonable faith proposition on the planet. And almost every single person who honestly sets out to prove it wrong becomes a Christian. I think about that like C.S. Lewis, the Oxford professor, who set out to prove it wrong, ends up writing mere Christianity, becomes a Christian, and says it's undeniable that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was Lord. And those are the only three options. 
Now the historian Tom Holland, um, who is at Oxford right now, just wrote an entire book that I'm trying to make my way through called Dominion. It's like 1,500 pages. And basically, what he, and he's not a Christian. And he says that Christianity has changed and shaped the world. And we need to have an explanation for it. And he said there is none other than Jesus might actually be who he said that he is. People say Jordan Peterson's wrestling through the same thing right now. Intellectuals who try to wrestle with Jesus end up finding out that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the resurrection, it's super logical, and it has many proofs. So let me just give you a couple of them. Undeniable proofs from the Bible. Number one, Jesus' death and burial. If you actually go back to the gospel writers, they take an, ignore, an extreme amount of time to make the claim that Roman soldiers guarded this tomb. Why does that matter? Well, they were actually pretty good at executing people. Matter of fact, the Romans have executed by crucifixion hundreds, if not thousands of people before Jesus. And guess what? None of them claimed to raise from the dead and none of them rose from the dead. They were pretty good at executing people. So good that if they let anybody into that tomb for any reason at all, they would be executed. And then the, and the Bible will tell you that there was a seal on the outside of that tomb so that you would know that nobody went in or went out. Why is that important? Because you have a Bible in your hand, okay? Let me, give you, let me just give you the aha moment. The Roman Empire was embarrassed by the fact that the Bible actually recorded that Jesus came up out of the tomb. They killed the Savior of the world for that. And if they didn't want you to have that Bible, you wouldn't have it. And if it wasn't a lie, I'm, I'm sorry, if it was a lie, you wouldn't have it. But you do have it. Everything in the world says you should not be holding this book that claims that they messed the whole thing up, and yet you have it. One of the greatest proofs of the resurrection is that you hold a Bible account that says that Jesus rose from the dead when an entire empire who ran the world tried everything they could to stop this movement, and they couldn't do it. Here's number two, the people who found Jesus. If you didn't know this, the very first eyewitnesses to the resurrection were not the apostles. They were two women, Mary Magdalene, a former prostitute, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. By the way, what would, it convince, what would it take to convince your mama that you were God? Think about that. Jesus went from being her son to the son of God. That's incredible. Even more significant is in the first century Greco-Roman world, a woman's testimony would not have been considered valid in court. So if you're writing a fairy tale story, you would never use these two women to write the account unless, unless it's true, unless it's true. Now, as awesome as that is, and it is, let me tell you one other thing, side note. Women, the Bible gives more dignity than any other book in all of antiquity. Ladies, I mean, don't believe the lie that somehow Christianity is patriarchal and misogynistic. No, at a time whenever women had no standing in society, Christianity was, more pro, it was a more pro-woman movement than anybody else. God has amazing things in store for you, and don't believe the hype that you see on social media. It's not true. Just read your Bible. Number three, the beliefs of the apostles. Y'all, don't take for granted that it's easy maybe for one man to die for a lie, but try to convince 12 people to be tortured and killed and never relinquish an iota of what they believed, even to their dying grave. Even Paul would tell you that over 500 people saw Jesus post-resurrection, and they're still alive. 
Again, it's not like Paul wrote this 200 years later and said, hey, 200 years ago, 500 people saw Jesus. No, he wrote it saying, guys, you were outside with me and you saw the man and I saw him and all your friends saw him. And if it's a lie, then there's no way that this gets circulated. But it's, for some reason, this movement continued. Every single one of the apostles were tortured, and 11 of them were killed for their faith. John was tortured, was exiled on the island of Patmos because they boiled him alive, and he survived it. And none of them relinquished their faith. I'm telling you, people might die for something they believe in, but nobody dies for something they know to be a lie. Here's number four, how quickly Christianity spread. This is the one that most people don't understand, but again, historian Tom Holland, the, the, the Oxford professor, says that the greatest question that secular historians have to answer is how Christianity took off so fast. Every other religion has a, a runway over hundreds and thousands of years, hundreds and thousands, not hundreds of thousands of years, hundreds and thousands of years, and yet Christianity developed overnight. It was almost like Pentecost happened, and then the whole world was worshiping Jesus. The only way that those things happen is if a man really did raise from the dead. And Luke tells you in the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, he appeared to them by many signs and proofs. Don't believe the lie that this is some fairy tale. Y'all, if you will take this seriously and think deeply about it, you'll be like C.S. Lewis who says that I cannot come to any other conclusion that Jesus really is who he said that he is. Verse three again. So Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Notice the subject line of Jesus's conversations, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is about Jesus's rule and reign on earth as it is in heaven. You know, Jesus isn't about building institutions. He's about building movements where God's rule and reign happens on earth as it is in heaven. That's why he prayed that in the Lord's Prayer, right? God, make your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus came to establish his kingdom, he came to establish it through his church and that there's gonna be this collision between heaven coming down to earth through his church building his kingdom. Do you, even, do you know what the Greek word for church is? The Greek word for church is the word ekklesia. It's actually a compound word between two words, ek, which means to be called out, and kaleo, which means to be called out. Think about that. The ek is out of and called out of. It's not about a movement. These two compound words are about a group of people who are called around an idea and a common conviction to build God's kingdom. That's the way the church was designed to be. The problem is, is over time, we, we abandoned the word ecclesia, and we've actually adopted a different word for church that's centered around this idea of a sacred institution. It, it comes from a German word, Kirche, which means a sacred place. That's where we get the word church from. For some odd reason, over time, we have shifted our fundamental thinking between being a movement of people to an institution or a church to where we gather as an auditorium. If you really want to know what God's plan is, it's this, you being engaged in the movement. That was always God's plan. Not that you would just show up to a place, but that you would be, you would be filled with the Spirit to be sent back out. Y'all, the church is set apart and it's called out to be a movement that changes the world, not a building to be entertained. How do I know that? Verse four. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, 
but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus told the first apostles, which by the way, if you want to know what the word apostle means, it means sent ones, to stay in Jerusalem until they receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about that for a moment. Did you know that Jesus said that it was better for him to go away so that we'd have the Spirit of God with us? My friend and mentor, J.D. Greer, here's how he said it. The Spirit inside of you is better than the Jesus beside you. According to Jesus himself, we will accomplish far more because he went away and the Spirit of God lives inside of us. Here's my question for you, because it sounds bogus to me. Do you believe that? Do you believe that it was better for Jesus to go so that the Spirit of God could be here? Here's how it works. Jesus, although God in the flesh, was one person. The Holy Spirit lives and resides inside of every single Christ follower on the planet, which is over a billion people, ready to be unleashed. And collectively, if we are spirit-embodied, empowered people, we become the greatest church planting movement in the history of the world because you actually have God living in you. See, when the church, is, when the church rises up and when the church sees itself as a movement and not a building, everything changes. We aren't stale. We're not dying. No, we're living and we're active. Think about what this looks like. He actually uses the illustration of baptism. Right? John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Spirit. When you go underneath water and you're baptized, you're fully immersed in this thing. That's the idea of being in the Spirit of God, is that you get all of God. The moment you became a Christ follower, you were fully immersed in the Spirit of God. And the moment you became a Christ follower, you get God. Here's my question for you. Does God have all of you? See, you're not lacking. People will say oftentimes, I hear him say, I, I, like, I can't find God. He's not lost. He's never been lost. Question is, are you making yourself available? Have you embraced all that God has for you? Are you ready for him to do amazing things through you? Let me give you a quick theology lesson. Write this down. According to the Bible, there's one baptism, but there's many fillings. What I mean by that is the moment you became a Christ follower, you were baptized into the Holy Spirit, which means you got all of God in that moment. He resides in you. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, I share this all the time. Therefore, if anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. You were made new in a moment of time. Your new creation, the old has passed away, the new has come. But there are many fillings of the Spirit. According to the Bible, oftentimes God tends to give you more of himself at specific times for specific purposes, mostly to build his church and to share the gospel. Now think about what the fruit of the Spirit is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. You know what's fascinating about that? They're fruits, which means that you don't develop, the, they're, not, they're not disciplines. You don't become more loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind. And contrary to popular belief, you cannot become more loving. But what you can do is you can submit yourself to the spirit of God that lives inside of you. And the natural fruit of that is you'll become more loving. The problem is, is you pursue the wrong thing. If you'll pursue Jesus, you'll actually become those things. So if you want to be more loving, Paul would tell you, he'd tell Timothy, fan into flame the spirit of God inside of you. If you want to be more joyful, fan into flame the spirit of God inside of you. If you want to be more patient, kind, gentle, you get what I'm saying? Fan into flame the, the spirit of God inside of you. Y'all, we've got this thing backward. 
And I know churches like ours that are Bible-believing churches where we go scripture by scripture, we tend to be afraid of this thing called the Spirit, but you shouldn't be. Embrace it. God has amazing things to do. We are meant to be a Spirit-filled movement, and God, God will turn the world upside down through us if we will do it. Here's the point. The danger in any church is we will stop being a movement that moves and we'll start being a gathering we attend. We'll start seeing Sunday morning as our obligation that we go to instead of the community we belong to. We'll start seeing a place where you get the talking head who gives you minimally decent sermons for way too long instead of seeing ourselves as the people who are empowered by God to take the gospel out. Here's my question for you. Write it down. Do you think about church as a place you attend or a community you're a part of? Now, for you type A people in the room like me, let me give you a quick warning. Because if you're like me, you're fired up. Like, let's get going. What do I do now? Look at verse four again. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Holy, for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. You know what the first job of the church was? Wait. You know why that's important? Because we tend to get going. And we tend to believe the lie that we can do it on our own. And if you do it on your own, the one thing you miss out on is God. Like, I don't know about you, but a lot of times in my life, it's hurry up and wait. Hurry up and wait. Hurry up and wait. I just, uh, and then nothing. You know, one of the things I'm learning is the most dangerous thing about ministry is you can do it on your own. You can figure out ways to organize it like a business, draw a crowd. I'm telling you, if I did seven ways to a better life, happier life every week, topical sermons, we had great music, some fog machines in here, got a big old building, we'd fill the whole place up. But God's not calling us to be an event. He's calling us to be a church. And the most dangerous thing about a church is you can do the whole thing and not have the power of God in it. I've told you this before. God cares way more about doing something in you than he does doing something through you. Now hear me, he wants to do both. But he cares more about your heart than he does about your accomplishments. And if you do it on your own, you'll run the risk of believing the lie that you can do it on your own. He's forming you into a certain kind of person. And sometimes, sometimes God lets you be like David who was anointed king and then went back to the pasture picking up sheep dung for seven years. Or like Moses, who was called to lead the people of God and then wandered around aimlessly in a desert for 40 years. Or like Joseph, who got a dream and a vision that he would, he would rule kingdoms and then became a slave and a prisoner for years. Sometimes God calls you to something great, but then he rips you to pieces because he's forming you into a certain type of person. And it's beautiful because at the end of the day, what you get is you get God. Listen to me. The same thing is true in your marriage and your parenting if you'll embrace it. You can get parenting techniques. I hear the books all the time, the podcast all the time, seven ways to a better marriage, blah, blah, blah. Those things have great value. But if you really want to see your family have breakthrough, invite the leadership of the Holy Spirit into your home. Submit yourself to what God is doing. Pray over your kids. Read the scriptures together. Trust God in those hard moments 
Embrace the hard moments. Because I'm telling you, if you don't have hard moments and everything's okay, God might not be teaching you anything. Because what God wants is you. He wants you. And at the end of the day, if he has you, everything else is going to be okay. Here's what God wants from you. You ready? Write it down. He wants you to yield yourself to the leadership of the Spirit. Have you taken your time in your life to simply pray, God, I'm yours. You already reside in me, and I need to get out. I've heard it said that in every heart, there's a cross and a throne. Either God is on the cross, and you're on the throne, or you're on the cross, and he's on the throne. My question for you is, are you willing to crucify yourself so that he can live in you? If you want to see him do amazing things, that's what happens. See, maybe before you make a decision, like, should I take that job or should I move? What if you reorder your thoughts to say, God, this community that I belong to is supernatural, and this is priority in my life and in my kids' lives. And Lord, I want to ask you, what do you want me to do? Like, I don't know if you know this or not, but there have never There's never in the history of the world been a more important assignment given to less qualified people than the 12 apostles who started the church. Think about that. These guys weren't CEOs and they weren't ruling kingdoms. They were tax collectors and fishermen. They were mess ups. And God used the foolishness of the world to shame the wise because it didn't matter what kind of qualifications they had. They had the most important qualification on the planet. They had God inside of them, just like you. Stop selling yourself short. God wants to use you. You might feel inadequate, but some of the most incredible things in the world happen in the most impossible situations. I have my favorite Bible verse right here, Matthew 19, 26. But Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Through your strength, you will accomplish something. Through your weakness and his strength, you can accomplish anything. Have you yielded yourself to the spirit of God inside of you? I'm not talking about good theology. I'm not talking about do you read your Bible. I'm asking you if you've allowed God to be unleashed in your life to work through you. Have you said, God, I'm yours? Now, you might be asking, and I'm trying to be real practical, how do I know what my spiritual gifts are? How do I know if the spirit of God can work through me? Great question. Let me give you two things practically that will help you figure those things out. Start serving. Start serving. I'm convinced that our passions are revealed as we serve. Y'all think that the Christian faith is passive. It's not. It's active. Maybe the reason why God's not moving is because you're not moving. God works in you through you as you move. When you put yourself out there, something happens because you become passionate about something. And when you're passionate about those things, God tends to put needs in front of you, and those two things work together. Here's number two. Ask the people around you. Oftentimes, you don't even realize what you're gifted at until somebody points it out in you. Like, maybe the problem with a lot of us is we aren't that known. And so because we're not that known, we, we do this thing on our own, and we can't figure it out. Listen to me. Join a small group. Join a small group and let people point out the giftings that they see in you. And then God will call those things to the surface. God has empowered every single one of us in this room, and he's gifted us, and he wants us to use it. 
By the way, God fills you with his spirit, like I told you. He fills you with his spirit because he wants you to use it for his church. It's not for your own benefits. It's for his. So when you see this in the scripture, it's to build up the church and to share the gospel. Just like Jesus said, right before he died, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. How about this? Luke 1.15, John the Baptist being filled with the spirit proclaims the coming of the Lord. Luke 1.41, Elizabeth being filled with the spirit proclaims the blessings of Mary. Acts 2.4, the Holy Spirit fills the apostles at Pentecost and they begin to declare God's praises in multiple languages. Acts 4.8, Peter's filled with the spirit and he preaches to the rulers of, that Jesus is their only hope for salvation. Acts 4.31, the disciples are filled with the Spirit and they speak the word of God boldly in the face of severe persecution. Acts 9.20, Paul is filled with the Spirit and he immediately preaches the gospel into the synagogues. I can go on and on and on, but what you see is none of them did it on their own power. God did something supernatural in them and he used them because they yielded themselves to something greater. You want to know what your spiritual gifts are? Yield yourself to the power of the Holy Spirit, he'll show you. Do it together in his church, and you'll do amazing things. Now, in light of all of that, let me tell you a couple things that I see for us as we walk through this over the next year. Here's number one. We can either die as an institution, or we can thrive as a movement. We can either die as an institution, or we can thrive as a movement. I don't know about you, but I want to be a movement that multiplies disciples. And the only way that that's ever going to happen is if every single one of us believes that we are spirit-filled beings that God wants to use. The type of church that we have, just all cars on the table, is not the type of church that everybody's just going to show up to because it's the greatest show in town. That's intentional. The type of church that we have is the type of church that's going to continue to grow like it has sustainably over the last five years because of people like you being the church in our community. If City Church is built on one personality or a couple people, it's going to fall flat on its face. But if we embrace the, the, the God-given responsibility that every single person in this room is gifted by God to do amazing things, it'll change the world. Again, I showed you this earlier. After Pentecost, thousands of people got saved. <laughs> Which crazy is. Check this out. Okay, Acts chapter 2. Those same people that were in the exile. Remember, Habakkuk, he comes up, he says, God, what are you doing? He says, even if I told you, you would not understand it. Well, those people went off to all four corners of the world. Acts chapter two, they came back to Jerusalem for Pentecost. The Holy Spirit falls on them. They go back and they plant churches. And then the greatest church planting movement in the history of the world started, but it didn't start on Acts chapter two. It started a thousand years prior when God was moving through normal everyday people. It's amazing. So whenever the apostles show up, they show up and the church is already there, thriving, because they weren't waiting on 12 guys to tell them it was okay. They were unleashed by God to go be the church where they are. If we would embrace that, I'm telling you, it would change everything. Charles Spurgeon, if Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You'll be whispering into your child's ear. You'll be telling it to your husband. You'll be earnestly imparting it to your friends. Without the charm of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk about his sweet love. There's nothing more powerful than talking about the person you love the most. And listen, the things you talk about the most are the things you are most passionate about. So if you want to know what you're passionate about, take inventory this week. Is it sports? Football starts this week. I'm pretty excited about that. 
I see a lot more Georgia gear on this week. It's not, not a cool thing. Is that what you're most passionate about? Is it your kids? Is it your job? What are you most passionate about? Because that's the stuff you talk about the most. Here's the next one. We can either be driven by programs or led by the Spirit. Did you know that 39 of the 40 miracles in the book of Acts happen outside the four walls of the church? You know why that matters? Because the church is the church when you are the church. That's why that matters. You see how we got the whole paradigm flipped upside down? What we're going to discover in the book of Acts this year is that it's not about coming here. You know, what we do here on Sunday mornings is super important, but I'm telling you, it is the training ground for the rest of the week. Why we gather and why at the end of every gathering we say you are sent is because this is just the beginning. What God wants to do is fill you with the spirit and then send you out like he did the apostles to be the light of the gospel in the world. Like, I don't know if you know this or not, but you are God's plan. It's business people and moms and dads filled with the spirit living as change agents in this world. That's how God's kingdom grows. And the same thing is true about miracles today, by the way. Most of the miracles that you see in the book of Acts, 39 of the 40 of them happen outside the four walls of the church. Same thing's true in here. Most of the miracles that we see happen in small groups or they happen in living rooms. They happen at the ball field as, as you guys are coaching your kids' teams and, you, and you're seeing life transformation happen. I mean, come on. Can you not see how important you are to God? He doesn't want you to just sit on the sidelines. He wants you to get in the game. So are you moving? Because movements move. Movements change. And we are the movement. Like, are you seeing how God wants you to intersect your life with the things you're already doing and simply do it with gospel intentionality. You don't have to create a bunch of programs to do this. You are the change agent equipped by the living God to make a difference in the world. Here's the last one. You need to belong here and be sent there. Both of those are important. That's God's game plan for this church. Belong here. Some of you need to decide that you're gonna get in the game here. You're gonna get engaged in serving, you're going to become a covenant member here, and you're going to show up. Like I told you last week, there's nothing like the ministry of presence. Sometimes, whenever there's a tragedy that happens in somebody's life, sometimes just sitting next to them makes all the difference. Listen, just being in the room makes all the difference. You, you realize, like I look around here, our church is like four times the size of this, but statistically speaking, we come to church on average two times every five weeks. How do we know that? We actually extrapolated kids' check-in data for six to seven months to look at how often we check in kids because there's like 150 kids in there. So that's not that far off. Um, the reality is, is we don't come to church that often, but we need one another. We need to be engaged with one another. We need to prioritize this thing as we grow this thing together. But then also, we need to live sent. You know, you don't have to be extraordinary for God to do extraordinary things. He uses the ordinary to do extraordinary. You just have to be intentional. And if you would be intentional, God would do amazing things. You know, this idea of a messenger, you know how important it is? The word gospel, euangelion, actually, it means good news. Um, what I find fascinating is I, I run marathons. Um, I don't know if I'm going to keep doing that, but running marathons is like the craziest thing ever because we base it off of a guy who ran 26.2 miles to tell a gospel, a good news to a bunch of people who were waiting to hear it, and then he died. And somebody was like, we should do that. <laughs> Euangelion, it's actually where we get the word angel from. It's where we get the word evangelism from. It means good news. 
You know what euangelion is? It was that moment when the doctor looked at me and my wife after we had our son, and she says, you have a boy. Um, I love my girls, but we found out the sex beforehand, and with both of my sons, we waited. And, and that moment in time, that euangelion. And my last son, uh, my, my fourth child, had major birth issues. And to hear those good words. Euangelion is whenever you hear the, the bell ring, you're cancer-free. Everybody loves the good news. You know what euangelion is? The moment that you heard the gospel. And your life changed. And it changes everything. The moment you celebrate the baptism of your son or your daughter or your neighbor after you strive alongside of them and you get to see their life change and their marriage restored. You are the mission. And you are the movement. When we embrace this, God changes everything.